know our, our church is getting a little older and we got like kids coming out, but I just want to just say it's this church is really it's a it really is a family church and I love seeing um the 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 young people who have grown up in this church, especially when they leave and go off to college. I love seeing them come back. Love seeing you guys, the college guys. I hope you don't feel like, oh, this church is getting old, and I don't know if I have a place here. You absolutely have a place here. Love seeing the college guys. And whether you're single and you're new, or whether you're couples and you don't have kids yet, we love seeing all, all the ages and reaching the next generation of our church. So um, just thank you for praying about that, Doak, and just praying that you know, we'd, we'd really be a family. Um, let me ask you now to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to read a passage that's, I think, to a lot of people is kind of odd. And it's odd to the modern ear what, this, what he seems to be talking about, but it's, in, it's tremendously relevant. And I'm, I'm, talking, I'm going to be talking about this as a picture of the church. A picture of the church. And let's see. Is, this is part six of our message, of our series on the church. And this message I've entitled, From Grace for Grace. There should be a culture, a culture which arises in the church which is not of human beings. It's not a man-made culture. And I'm going to get into this. We're going to look at this by looking at this passage and, then in a, and a couple others in 1 Corinthians. So um, let's go. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. This is the word of God. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God, We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother from whom Christ died." Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Pray for today's uh, message. And try to, as I explicate this seemingly odd passage, okay? Let's pray. Father, there's a tremendous principle here in these pages of how there is to be a certain attitude and a heart among the believers and a certain culture which should arise in the church, which is from grace for grace. 
And I pray, Lord, that your people here would hear with ears to hear and with eyes to see, would walk by faith, not by sight. And they would receive this word, receive this word, and you would turn this community truly into a heavenly community. One, there's a culture that is divine and not man-made so that we would be of grace wholly and completely. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you know that cultures are built on something? Our culture is built on rights. Did you know that? America, America has a culture which is built on rights, and that's actually an advance. Most cultures of the world was built on power, some combination of power and religion. So usually, most societies in the world, you have power and laws and the military. The government wields the power of the sword. And then usually the government operates along with religion. So you know, there's always this kind of tension between the king and the priests. The king and the priests. So the religions say, this is God's and God's will punish you. These are our gods. These are our standards and these are things you have to be. And then the kings tell you, our, our political leaders tell you, and so power and religion and all the do's and don'ts of religion has tended to be what builds culture. But America, America, and I think this is actually an advance, is built upon rights. And actually, this idea that it's built upon rights is in an attempt is actually to be be built from the Bible. (laughs) What does it mean to be a nation, one nation under God? And we try to build a nation built upon rights. But actually, the Bible offers that the church, no nation can quite operate this way. Because there's no nation that will truly bow to Jesus. But the church bows to Jesus. The church lives from the gospel. No nation will live on the gospel. But, but the, the church is built not on power, not on religion, not on rights, but the church operates from a culture from grace for grace. That's what the church should be. And so in one sense, the church should have a culture that is utterly different from anything else in the world, from grace for grace. And in order to start this, I'm going I'm to, you know, as I do, and typically I'm going to do this in three parts. Act one, I'm going to talk about food and idols. I'm going to talk about this odd passage, food and idols. In part two, act two, I'm going to talk about the principle of grace over my freedom and my rights. Grace over my freedom and my rights. And in act three, I'm going to call it Heavenly culture. Heavenly culture. Okay? Now let's get into this passage. Um, chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. Some of you are wondering, what is this about? And it is an odd passage, especially for uh, modern minds. And in order to just let me try to take you back into ancient Corinth. Back in the ancient Corinth, it was a very pagan city, and the city was filled with temples to all kinds of different gods. It's not like they just had one dominant religion or just even two or three dominant religions. There are all kinds of gods around the city. And when people go to pagan gods, I don't know if you know this, but pagan religions don't believe that you meet God and have a personal relationship with God. A lot of different religions of the world don't even believe in a personal God. They, don't even, they believe that God is just like some kind of like impersonal force throughout the world. They have this, they call it the Brahma or something like that. Um, the, the most famous example of this is the force. 
go with the force, you know, in, in the movie Star Wars. That's, the force isn't something you can have a personal relationship. It's, it's a force. It's impersonal. But there's also other conceptions of gods. Most pagan conceptions of gods, they're these powerful beings above us, and they don't really care about us. But every now and then, if you go with them and give them something they want, they may be nice to you. And so um, theologians and historians have tended to look at pagan religions and said that pagan religions effectively are transactional. And you guys understand what this means? You go down to the supermarket and you pay them an extra, a certain amount of money and you can walk out with a bag of groceries. You have made a transaction. You've given something and you get something. It's a quid pro quo. You, get, you give something, you get something. It's transaction. And a lot of pagan religions go this way. You go down to the temple, and you do certain kinds of, you do certain kinds of prayers, and they're not like personal prayers. You, you say certain kinds of things, and you go through certain kinds of rituals, and one of the things you do is you make a sacrifice. You give something. And in the ancient world, they would go down to the gods, they would give their prayers, and, and this isn't something ancient. This is very common. If you go to many other countries, people will go to the local temples and they're saying, I need my business to thrive. Or I want my child to be healed. And what they'll do is they'll go and give an offering to the temple. They'll give a certain person and they give an offering to the temple. And a lot of people still look at Christianity this way, but Christianity is nothing like this. When the people would go down in Corinth to the, the temple to, to bow down to their gods, one of the things they would do is they would give a sacrifice. And what they would do is they would give a sacrifice of food, and particularly of valuable food. It would be of meat. Why meat? Now, some of you are thinking, well, it's strange, and it seems utterly mysterious, but it's not mysterious to most of the people in the world, because when you go down to your God, you have to give something valuable. Why? It's like, if you just show up and give them pennies, why should your God care? You're supposed, this God, you have to show that you actually want to give something of real meaning that, that actually costs you something so that the God may actually, may actually like, do you a favor. And so we live in the, probably the, the, the biggest meat-eating country in the world. Why? Because we have Texas. <laughs> we have vast stretches of great cattle land, and we have perfected, you know, uh, great, um, raising up huge amounts of meat that is so it's very uh, it's very actually rather affordable in our country so on most most americans on any given day you, you want to have a steak guess what you probably can you don't even have to be rich you may not eat the most expensive filet mignon but you can probably have an okay decent steak even though you're middle class but this isn't the way most of the world is if you go around to most of the world eating meat is it's actually kind of expensive it's a bit of a luxury you know that in asia um, you know that in Asia, beef is, is more expensive? And so that Asian-based diets tend to favor pork. Why? Because it's a lot easier to raise pigs than it is to raise cattle, and it's a lot cheaper to raise pigs. And so Asian diets tend to favor pork. And so e- even in the ancient world, when you would go down, the people would go down to the temple, and they would make a sacrifice, and it would often be meat. And so... And then afterwards, they would do their things, and some of the stuff they would do would be gross. They'd have temple orgies with the temple prostitutes, and then afterwards, then they would eat this grand meal with the temple priests. I mean, 
If you are a temple priest and you get to eat meat regularly, you're living pretty good in this society. And, and so that's a form of riches that you would go. I mean, just like today, things haven't changed a whole lot, right? We like to have our sex. We like to eat our meat. We like to eat grand uh, meals. And this is the way it was in this decadent uh, Greco-Roman uh, Hellenistic culture. And this is how they, do, they would do it. But it, it, it produced an issue, a particularly, it produced a question which is raised here in these pages in the early church. So what will happen is, you know, most of you are thinking like, well, you know, like they stopped eating the meat in the temples because they became Christian, so they stopped doing that, right? But it didn't just end there. The, the, the priests would not only eat, if there was a, a, some rich guy would show up and he gave like a big carcass of meat, and would offer that, it's not like they're all going to just eat that after the service is over. The, the, the temple, and especially the priests, would get that meat, and you know what they would do? They would then get rich off of it by selling it in the local market. So that meat would go to the local market, and people would go down to the store, and they'd realize, hey, this, this hunk, of, this hunk of, uh, of, 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 uh, of beef didn't come from the farm. It came from that temple of Diana over there. And we know what they do over there. And so some of the people would hear the gospel and they would get saved and they would join the church. And then this question would arise. Hey, you know, before I became a Christian, I used to go down to that temple and I used to sleep with the prostitutes and, and then eat the meat. But is it okay to eat the meat that's being sold at the market over there? Which, is that Okay. So if I go over to a friend's house and they serve me meat, am I allowed to eat that? Because I know where this guy shops. <laughs> okay? Am I allowed to eat that meat? And here's what Paul's answer to it was. Here's how it starts. The way he starts is very interesting. He says this very important verse. He says, Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. You have a piece of knowledge. And what is that knowledge? Well, the knowledge is, we know that the God, that God, Diana, or all these other gods that they worship, we know they're not real. And we know that meat is food, and food is from God, and food is good. Food can't defile you in the sense that it's just, it's food. So we know, that's what we know, that's the knowledge that we have. But actually, let me hold on. More important than knowledge is love. You have this knowledge that it's food, and thus you know that you have a right. It's perfectly good. I have a right to eat this food. What's the problem? It's just meat, right? But more important than the knowledge that you have this right is actually love. That, and indeed, he goes on to say, actually, love, uh, knowledge actually has a bit of a danger. It could puff people up. I think this is especially important to say in our city. This is a very knowledge-oriented city. You know that, um, that the world now becomes rich by being smart. It used to be the world was rich by being more militaristically powerful or by having um, some latest uh, set of technology. But now we do it by being smart. And by being smart, we invent the latest technologies. And now we believe we live in the whole world lives in what we call the global economy. And this is one of the key cities... It's very knowledge-oriented. But in this city, it's not knowledge we have to proclaim to you. More than knowledge. It's something that goes beyond knowledge. It's a love which comes out of grace. And here's the point he's saying. 
You go over to a friend's house. If they don't say anything to you about where the, the where this meat is from, you know that it's from the market, and it doesn't bother you because you know it's just, then eat it. <laughs> then just eat it. It's no big deal. But if it, the word comes out, hey, this meat was, uh, is, you, know, you know where this meat is from, and, but there's somebody in the room that could maybe be bothered by this because they're a brand new Christian, or they used to really, they used to live this decadent lifestyle where they used to regularly eat this meat because they used to really be these pagans and used to practice on all these sins. They may really be bothered in their conscience. So why don't you not use your right? Why don't you, why don't you put your right aside out of love for this person? More importantly than what you know, more importantly than your right to get to eat meat... <laughs> And by the way, um, just, just if you ever meet a person who's like a really self-righteous vegetarian, here you go. This is, you, can, you can point this out. The Bible says you can eat meat, okay? But you may want to say, if there's a very self-righteous vegetarian in your midst who really gets stumbled, you may, what would really be the grace thing to do is to not eat the meat. <laughs> to say, you know what, for you, I'll, I'll be, I'll with, withhold, right? And I know this seems like a very strange point. He's saying that if you do something that is your right, you can cause someone else to stumble. You can cause their conscience to be You can cause them to be hurt. And in that way, you're actually sinning. You're exercising a right. You know that by law, by what is right and wrong, you can do this thing. But, but, but there's actually a higher, a higher principle that we live on. But it's by grace. You're actually sinning against this person out of their weakness. And I know this, uh, this, this thing about meat is a little bit strange because, well, we're, we're a really carnivorous <laughs> society and we can afford the meat, and we, we, we do, right? But um, let, let me give you two classic examples that, that's going on all the time. It's so common in, in the regular everyday church. Let me give the first one, the question of alcohol, right? For so many people, alcohol, drinking alcohol is considered a sin. A lot of people who grew up in the church consider it a sin. A lot of people who did not grow up in the church think that it's a sin for Christians to drink alcohol. But let me tell you, the real truth, the knowledge is that's not true. That's simply not true. There's nowhere in the Bible that forbids drinking alcohol and that says drinking alcohol is a sin. It says don't be, become drunk with wine, but it says don't, you can't drink. But we also know that alcohol is regularly abused. We know that people drink and then they get into a car and then they run over somebody and kill people. We know that lots of people drink. There's tons of people who drink. And then they get really angry and then they beat their wives and their children. We know there are people who are addicted to alcohol. And they're destroying their lives and the people around them. And so this, this is a serious issue. And yet, people come into the church, are we allowed to drink or not to drink? Well, the knowledge is you could drink. You know, um, do you know, you know that, that maybe one of the reasons why so many Christians don't drink, well, some don't drink because, well, they're being pharisaical, legalistic, quite frankly, because they don't have enough knowledge. But actually, even for those, those brothers whom the, whom the Bible calls weaker brothers, many Christians, if you are mature, what you would do is you live by grace. Now, look, I'll just tell you right now, I, I'm not above drinking some alcohol, Right? If you, 
typically I don't actually drink very much. I, I like my beer. I'm actually a little bit of a beer snob. I don't like the junky beers like Budweiser and Coors Light and all those garbage beers, okay? I actually like good beer, <laughs> okay? But, um, so I hope this isn't causing anybody... I'm just telling you straight. I'm teaching you now, right? But, but in certain kinds of company, if I'm not sure if the people around me understand, you know what? I'll refrain. Especially because I'm a leader in the church. I'll refrain. I don't need to drink. And so, you know, you may come over to my house and you might, because like, gosh, I, sometimes I actually, I, sometimes I forget, I'm thinking, I wonder who's going to come to my house. Someone might come to my house, look at my fridge, and go, whoa, the pastor has a six-pack. Right? Um, but actually, you never know. You never know. There may be not only people whose conscience, because they are immature and they don't have knowledge, about grace, but you never know in the church if someone comes into your, your presence or they, you invite them over for dinner and you don't know if they're, they wrestle with alcohol addiction. And so for that reason, why exercise your right? In fact, more than your right, more important than your right is the grace of Jesus to you. That's one example. Let me give you another common one. Very common, important in the church. Ladies, Men have eyes. That's not news to you. Men have eyes and they look. And men's eyes like to look at certain parts of females' bodies and think in certain kinds of ways when they look at, see those things, right? And is it wrong to wear nice clothes? Is it wrong even to wear clothes that are, that's even somewhat revealing? Now, if you do it because you want people to lust after you, yes, that, that it's wrong, Okay. That's wrong. It's like, yes, you know, because like being a stripper, yes, I would say that is a sin 100% of the time, okay? <laughs> the purpose of that is to incite lust and, and enslavement, okay? But, yes, ladies can dress nice, of course. Is that wrong? And is it your right? Yes. I would even say it's your right. It is right. But there's a lot of guys that if they see you dress certain kinds of ways, it'll, 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 cause them trouble. It'll cause them to stumble in their hearts. And lots of other ideas and thoughts and things will go through their mind that shouldn't be going through their mind. And actually, it's even stranger in our society today. You know, we live in a society there's a lot of homosexuals. Guys, I know this sounds really strange. If you like to wear certain types of clothes that make you look certain attractive, you might want to think about causing certain people to stumble. I mean, you never know if someone will come into our church or into our fellowship who wrestles with same-sex attraction. Maybe he's a Christian and he's trying very hard to not live the homosexual lifestyle, but he has same-sex attraction. You know what? You shouldn't wear certain types of clothes. Why? Not because you don't have the right to wear those clothes or those clothes are in and of themselves are even wrong or evil, but out of love. Out of love to lay down your rights. This is what this passage is talking about. Okay? That's what the food and idols issue is. That's part one. Let me go to part two of my message. Um, I have entitled part two, Grace Over My Freedom and Rights. And some of you are thinking, Pastor, don't you, you're kind of just stretching this a little bit far. <laughs> this is just one chapter out of the Bible. It's like you're just kind of making a mountain out of a molehill and this is a big deal. You're saying there's a whole culture that because we've received grace, that we're supposed to now give grace to somebody else and even put down, I mean, come on, I like my rights. I like to get to do what I want to do. We all do. I mean, 
This is a country where everybody likes to assert their right. It doesn't matter whether you're on the political left or you're on the political right. Democrats, Republicans, rich, poor, and everyone in between, we all love our rights. And we get really upset if any of our rights have to be curtailed. But the Bible is calling us to a deeper way of life. That because someone else laid down his rights... He did not have to treat you with this kindness. He did not have to love you this way. In fact, it was God's right to condemn us, to cast us away from himself, not to be nice to us, but even more than that. So that now we're called to not only just receive, if someone gave you $10 zillion and you just kept it all to yourself, is that, is that, would that be good? But that God gave you something and I'm, I mean, money is not even a good analogy, but like grace from the Lord is like receiving $10 zillion so you could give. You could give grace. Right? Look, let me just, just show you just, this is not just some, um, in 1 Corinthians 6, you don't have to go there, but let me just quickly, this is an odd thing. And Paul is upset because in the church, people are suing each other. So in the Corinthian church, beautiful church, Great, such a beautiful period. They just get so along with each other, they sue each other. And that never happens anymore, right? I mean, like in the modern day, nobody ever sues anybody, right? I mean, in California, nobody ever sues anybody, right? <laughs> Wrong. Come on. And Christians never sue other Christians, right? But you know what he says in, in verse 7 of chapter 6? He says, to have lawsuits at all with each other in the church is to already be defeated. That's what he says. It's to already be defeated. And then he says this crazy thing. And, and think about what a lawsuit is. If someone rips you off of $20, you might want to punch them in the nose. But, you know, you're a Christian, you come to church, and you don't punch them in the nose because if you did, everybody else would think you're an idiot. <laughs> and you would be an idiot if you punched someone in the nose over 20 bucks. But you don't sue somebody over 20 bucks. You sue somebody when they really have ripped you off, it's a serious amount of money. But here's what he says in chapter 6, verse 7. He says, To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat. And then he says this crazy thing. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? That's what he says. He's not talking about meat now. He's not talking about clothes. He's not talking about alcohol. You know what he's saying? He's talking about serious money. And his view is this. With your brothers and sisters, the whole world is looking, because they look at those people in the church, they don't love each other any better. There's no such great, what the heck? What is this Jesus business? He goes, why not rather just lose the money? Why not just be defrauded instead? You know what he's saying? He's saying you've been given so much. And what is money? Why can't you have a, 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 a... a minor loss today for eternal riches tomorrow. Why can't you grant? Maybe the person who did this to you is really an idiot. He doesn't deserve your kindness. That's how you, you're really angry. It's my right to get this money back. It's my right. He's an idiot. He deserves to have a punch in the nose. That's how you feel. And you know what? You may be right. That may be real knowledge. But Paul says, why not be defrauded? It's wild. And if, and if that wasn't enough, you go to chapter 9. So we get chapter, chapter 6, chapter 8, chapter 9. I mean, he keeps repeating this. In chapter 9, you know what he talks about? 
In chapter 9, he talks about this issue of, because in the church at the time, back in Corinth, some of them were complaining, you apostles, you guys are pastors, and you guys want to get paid by us. And, And what he says is, and what he first does is he, he first teaches the truth. He teaches knowledge. Why don't we, we, we have a right to get paid? Everybody makes money off the work that they do. Farmers and even the ox gets to eat some of the food. That's, and that was their practice back then. The ox works, the farmer works, and he gets paid from the work he has. Why can't we get paid from the gospel work that we do? That's what he says. And, and, but then he says this extraordinary thing in chapter 9. He goes, but I actually choose, here's how he says this, verse 15. He actually literally used this word. But I have made no use of these rights. Nor am I writing these things to secure. I'm not even saying this because uh, I want you to pay for me. I actually don't want you to pay me. And then he goes on to say, blah, blah, blah. He goes on, and, and, and I won't go through this, the whole portion, but when he gets to verse 18, he says, What then is my reward? It's not money. My reward is that in my preaching that I may present the gospel free of charge. I actually want the gospel to be given to you free. And I think the, the, it's in the Bible here to teach, to teach us, one, it should be the heart of every pastor that he wishes he could do it for free. And two, it's to teach all of the church that we wish we could give the gospel to everybody for free. Look, Paul is a single guy. <laughs> he, uh, he, he spent a lot. He actually had another job. His real job is to, his real calling, because he even says, if I preach the gospel, I, I have been entrusted. I don't do this of my own. I have to do this. God made me do this. God called me to do this. And by the way, that's how I feel too. God called me to do this. I must preach the gospel. But Paul is a single guy. And he actually had a day job so that he could do his real work. And, what, and it's famously known as what he did was he made tents. And he probably didn't make much money because how much money can you make making tents? And so we have this famous phrase that pastors who have a day job, so to speak, who can also then do the work of the gospel are tent makers after Paul. And it's, it's more effective in the church when the pastor doesn't have to do that. And often when a pastor has a wife and kids, it's pretty hard to do that. So I'm really thankful to you all that you pay me so I can do this work. So I get to study, I can to pray. One of our sisters said, you know, when I shook her hand, she said, you got soft hands. I'm like, well, it's because I don't work with my hands, <laughs> all right? I can have soft hands because I'm a pastor, right? And while she's shaking my hand, doing the peace of Christ. And I'm thankful to that. But I wish, I wish that I could do this for free. Really, I do. Right? And, you know, there's this uh, famous pastor, one of the most famous pastors, his name is... Uh, his name is Rick Warren. You know that he wrote, he just wrote this little book that happened to be this super duper bestseller. Um, sold millions and millions of copies called The Purpose Driven Life. And it's a pretty good book. Um, but our, I, I, I learned that one of the things he does, he, he makes millions and millions of dollars. You know what he did? As he started to make more and more money from this book, he started to give back every cent that the church ever gave him to support him in ministry. And then he got, the, he, just, he got this idea. He got this idea. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to reverse tithe. So he makes millions and millions of dollars from this book. You know that? And he decided, instead of giving 10% to the, to the Lord's work, I'm going to give 90%. 
90% of millions and millions of dollars. That's the heart of grace. From grace for grace. So it's not just some weird thing that's in, 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 the, in the past. It's happening today. I mean, if, if everyone who says, I wrote a best-selling book, I would love to be able to do something similar. And so this heart, being defrauded, someone hurts you, wrongs you. Someone, someone is an idiot <laughs> and snubs you. Someone is just plain immature. They're just plain immature. And you're like, what do I have to go, what do I have to do this for them? They're, they're, they're immature, right? But, but this, the, the church, what is the, 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 the church, what makes the church partly the church is it's from grace, so that people receive a grace and they give grace. Now look, I'm going to say this one more thing before I move to part three of my message. I once heard this thing from um, one of my favorite preachers. His name is Tim Keller. And he said, the way of the world is your life for mine. You sacrifice in your life so that my life will be better. He goes, but the way of grace is my life for yours. I'll sacrifice in my life so that your life will be better. And the most important, greatest better of all is that you would have God. You would be saved by grace and know Jesus. Your life for mine or my life for yours. Now let me go to part three of my message. Look, this is hard. (laughs) We're really entitled, selfish. It's a strange thing. If you build a society based upon rights, what we found out now 200 years later is it helps make the people selfish. If you take God out of it, build a society based on rights, everybody's filled with rights. It doesn't actually make the society that great, does it? You know? You're, you're driving along the road. You have a right to drive in this lane in peace. And this idiot cuts into you. What happens? Certain fingers start coming out of your hand. <laughs> Maybe not all of you. And certain words start coming out of your mouth. If you live in certain cities, guns even come out. I mean, it's crazy. Even guns start coming out. Well, let me think of this. I, I, I hope there's no traffic in heaven. Okay. It, it's like, but if there is traffic in heaven, because I hope heaven is crowded, quite frankly, because there's a lot of people. I hope there's tons of people. And if there is, and that nobody will cut off. And if someone does cut off, you know what? What would be given? Grace. Have you ever been in a community where people treat you like this? Where people say, my life for yours. They say it, they think it, and then they live it. You make a mistake. You offend them. You hurt them. They not only forgive you, but then they begin treating you in such a way that you realize it's really gone. They don't just forgive you, they now love you. They sacrifice of their money and of their time. And actually, this is what we do in the church. (laughs) We ask people to join the church. And you know what we do? We ask people for this. You join the church in our membership. One of the things we ask is, would you now, now that you've become and you've committed to being a member, would you tithe? We're asking you to give money and make yourself poor so that other people can get the gospel. And by the way, a tithe, that's not even like the maximum. That's sort of like, that's the place we want you to begin giving. 
And so Rick Warren is like, he's pushed up to 90%. I mean, that's, that guy's wild, okay? But we're asking you to start a... Temp- that's, a that's hard. Huh? And, but it's not even just money. It's, it's we're asking you for your time. We're asking you for your energy. We're asking you to forgive each other, to have patience, to, to have a heart. And this is the church. But how can this be? And I'm thinking, Pastor, this is really hard. And we get really tired. And one of the things you often hear people say is, I'm burnt out. Because you run this race of trying to save my life for yours. And you know what? It gets really exhausting at times because there's usually a minority of people who do this. And yet, and yet, if you've ever been in a community like this, let me tell you something. I've been, it doesn't happen often. It could just be a small group. I've been in churches that have lots and lots of small group, but you, there's like one small group where they're living from grace for grace. They don't just receive grace. They give grace to each other. Let me tell you something. You'll never forget that small group. Right? If you've ever been in a church like this, and of course the whole church isn't like this, but there's just a core of people and a, and a culture that starts to flow of this from grace for grace. It starts to come out of them. And my wife and I, we've been in a church like this. And usually a church can't be like this like consistently, but for a time, there was a season for a certain number of years, we've been in a church where people really began to treat each other like this. Let me tell you something. My wife and I, to this day, we miss that church. And it was in the city of Boston, and I hate the city of Boston, and I hate the weather, and we were poor, and we were young, and we were clueless. But to live in the culture from grace for grace, it will make you happy. And heaven... I know you think about heaven. What's heaven? Heaven is the place where there's no more suffering. And there's no more death. And isn't that great? Of course it's great. And some of you, I don't know if you've ever thought about heaven. I think about heaven a lot. And I think about what it could be like. And I think about the culture of heaven. And I know that just, just, just a foretaste of being in church where it's like that, I know that is just a little bit of heaven. It's like, a, it's like an appetizer toward heaven. And if you've never experienced it, I'm just telling you, it's one of the greatest things I've ever had in my life. And I've never traded. I've never traded those few years I've had with that church, in certain small groups, with certain people I walk with. I've never traded. It's greater than all my money and all my achievements and my degrees and whatever the heck else I got. Because it's heavenly. Okay? And... Some of you think, I want to go to heaven because there's going to be no more tears and no more suffering. And some of you are just thinking, I'd like to go to heaven well, because it's not the other place. <laughs> when I was a, a, a boy, mostly I didn't think about heaven. I just cared that I didn't end up in the other place. But now I don't even worry about the other place. I so badly want what's heavenly. And in the church, the church is the place. The church is the family. The church is the organization where a heavenly culture can come. Because Jesus said, my life for your life. He gave us such a huge grace so that even when we're terrible at it, and we are terrible at it, we are so not good at giving each other, even when we do it even just a little bit, even just a little bit, it's so wonderful and so powerful.
So even when the church isn't doing it well, it's still heavenly. That's from grace for grace because of Jesus. So brothers and sisters, you know, you come to church, you say this and that, this person bothers you, blah, why is this there? All this other stuff. And yet, every now and then, you're going to taste of the grace. Someone will be kind to you when you didn't deserve it. Someone will give you more than you deserved. In fact, they decide to refrain from what you deserved, getting a punch in the nose, and give you what you did not deserve. Love beyond love, patience, and even being willing to be defrauded for you. This is the church being the church, being heavenly, and only from Jesus. Let's pray. We live in a society so dead set on rights. I have truth, I have knowledge, I have rights. And yet our society is filled with lonely people. We badly long for community. We badly long for real love. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that the Father sent you and you said yes. The Father said, let your life be for theirs. Jesus, and you said yes. And I pray, Lord, that you would pour out a grace so powerful in our hearts that a heavenly culture would arise in this church that a heavenly culture would be in our small groups. It would be in the way we talk to the Korean ministry, the way we would talk to developmentally disabled people in this Halingjigi ministry, the way it would be when people insult you or even rip you off in this church, because it's going to happen. And instead of going, oh, that's a bad church, actually, when we see the grace, we go, all the dysfunctionality of the world, the sin of the world is in this church but we meet it head on. Not not by duty and obligation and law. And we don't make people tithe. We don't make people do these things. What we do is we say, Jesus has loved us. Jesus has graced us. And by your Spirit, because it's only your Spirit can do this in our hearts, would you let grace arise so deeply that it would spill out in us and form a heavenly culture beyond our rights, beyond our entitlement, grace. Bless us and make us church, truly the church, in this way, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond to the Lord now. All right.